Hello and welcome to The Heart Chamber. I am your host, Boots Knighton. Wow, we are coming up to the end of season one. Today is episode 19. We've got one more episode to go. So I want to encourage you to quickly go over and hit the subscribe button. So that way you know when I come out with season two, which will likely be early in the fall. Also, you can find me at theheartchamberpodcast.com or on Instagram at theheartchamberpodcast. But let's talk about today's guest. I interview Mallory Streaker. Mallory and I recently met through an incredible organization we both just joined called Women Heart. We both are now heart champions. I was so inspired by her story that I reached out to her and asked her to be a guest and she said yes. I am so excited for us to hear from Mallory today. She is a six-time open heart surgery survivor and thriver, and she has a new heart. Mallory was born with tricuspid defect called Epstein anomaly. It is truly amazing what she is doing with her body now post-open heart surgery, and I think you're going to find her story so inspiring. So thank you so much again for joining me today. And again, don't forget to hit that subscribe button. All right, let's get to it. Mallory, thank you for coming on The Heart Chamber for episode 19, season one. Tell us, where are you from? I am from Ohio near Cleveland, which is very lucky because the Cleveland Clinic is a top heart transplant place. Yes, yes, you are lucky. And for listeners, uh, I met Mallory through Women Heart and Mallory and I just went through this incredible symposium where we had to apply to become heart champions and that was quite the application we had to have an interview and then we got accepted and got to go through this training together on how to be heart champions for Women Heart and if you haven't heard of Women Heart please check them out. It's the only patient-run organization in the United States for women with heart disease. And and, am I missing anything there, Mallory? I'm still working on my stump speech. (laughs) Um, I don't think so. It was a really great training. A lot of really powerful stories from women all over the country. You know, we got to speak with some cardiologists and and other professionals as well. So yeah, it it was a great program. Highly recommend. Yeah, I called it the mini med school. (laughs) Like there were so many like neat things that we learned. And I went to the Mayo Clinic last summer and Dr. Patricia Best, who is amazing. She did part of our training. She actually did my heart cath last summer. And I didn't know I could laugh so much while having a wire inserted into my heart. It was pretty amazing. (laughs) So Mallory really piqued my curiosity when in the training as she was sharing her story and she likes to describe herself as having a congenital heart difference instead of a congenital heart defect and I was like I need to talk to this lady because I have found at least for myself and my heart journey the self-talk piece particularly at the beginning was really, I mean, I really trash talked myself and 
just saw myself as defective and broken and not worthy because I hadn't been born right. And I just really appreciated Mallory's point of view. And so that's why I've invited her to come on to the podcast today. So Mallory, I would love it if you would just dive in and start sharing your story. I mean, you've got six open heart surgeries and a transplant to tell us about. So where should we begin? <laughs> yeah, so the, the transplant was the sixth and final, which was a little over two years ago now. So um, I was born with a heart defect called Epstein's anomaly. It's a tricuspid valve defect. When I was young, they knew right away because I was kind of blue when I was born, but it didn't affect me too too much when I was young. And then at about 12 years old, I started having some issues. I was a ballet dancer and I just suddenly wasn't keeping up with my peers very well. And there was one specific event where I, I turned very blue, more so than I you know, usually was. I always had a little bit of a blue tint to my like fingers and toes especially. And at that point when that happened, my parents made an appointment with my cardiologist who I was already seeing I believe once a year at the time. And I went in and I found out that I was going to need an open heart surgery to repair this valve. So I was wildly underprepared for that at 12 years old. You know, back then they mm -hmm. didn't know too much about how it affected, you know, you mentally and depression that uh, the bypass machine can cause. So I wasn't really warned about any of that. I just thought, okay, I'm going to like go have this surgery and be fixed and then everything in dance is going to be super great again. That was not the case. I was definitely never the same. You know, I came back to dance after about a month in the hospital. Actually, I had some complications with that first one and was so skinny and, and weak and I had lost, you know, a ton of muscle that I had spent, gosh, nine years at that point building. I've done ballet since I was three. It took me a long time to sort of rehab physically from that. And then I had pretty severe depression for years following that surgery. And back then they didn't really know how to help with that or like what the link was between depression and, and open heart surgery. They knew it existed. They didn't really understand fully why. I think I saw some therapists at the time, but it was very much by persuasion of my parents rather than my own choice, which never really goes well. So yeah, at 16, I needed another surgery. I just really started not feeling well. Um, so they did a Another valve repair at the time, they also rerouted my blood flow a different way through my heart to take some of the workload off of my right ventricle. Uh, that had been very overworked, so it was, it was growing pretty rapidly, which was causing a lot, a lot of stamina issues. So after that surgery, I was never really the same. I just didn't recover quite as well as I did from the first one. I did go back to dance. Definitely, I wasn't dancing nearly as much as I had been prior. And eventually, I I went to college. I got a job when I was like 19 or 20 as a waitress, eventually a bartender. So that was pretty physically demanding. I stayed in shape due to that, but I wasn't really like exercising outside of work. It was definitely tough for me. I couldn't work as much as, as a lot of other people could. I needed some extra days off or like not as long of shifts. And then when I was maybe 25, I started really not feeling well again. I started having some 
things happen. Um, I went into atrial flutter a few times, which is like a very, very rapid heart rate. And I would have to be taken to the emergency room and be cardioverted. And around that same time after that happened multiple times, I it was discovered that I was an end-stage heart failure, which at that point they did a valve replacement. I ended up having two open heart surgeries the same day with that. There was a little bit of an emergency where they had to go back in. So that was three and four. And that did not work. If anything, the replacement valve kind of made it worse. At this point, my heart took up 75% of my chest cavity. I had quit working and I was pretty much on bed rest, spending 16, 17, 18 hours a day in bed, if not more, 12 or more of those sleeping. When I would get up, it was to do really simple stuff. I had a great group of friends who had you know, come over and like help me do my hair and makeup and get ready. And maybe they'd take me to dinner or whatever, but I really wasn't doing much more. And I waited a couple of years of feeling like that. And about a week after my 30th birthday, they decided to move me into the hospital at the Cleveland Clinic to be put on intravenous medication. My heart just could not really pump on its own anymore. So that medication helped my heart pump. But that medication also can very rapidly cause multiple organ failure. So they talked about, you know, other options and ultimately decided to put me on a right ventricular device or a right ventricular assist device, which is similar to a LVAD. Um, I'm sure a lot of people have heard of an LVAD, but it's for the right side of the heart. So it's a little different in that once you have it in, you cannot leave the hospital. It's it's kind of a big machine. I believe that like ECMO might be included with it. So therefore I was I was A1 status, you know, pretty much the top of the list. That was open heart number five when they put that in and kind of did some other like preparation work for a transplant. And then three days later, after I had the RVAD put in, I I got a match and got a new heart. That was a little over two years ago. That recovery was very difficult, harder than any prior open heart surgery. It was mentally more challenging. It was physically more challenging. Getting used to all the transplant medications is still uh, a struggle, but much more tolerable now than it was then. When I got out of the hospital, I started getting into weightlifting. I had kind of like lifted weights before. I've been, I had been to the gym before, but not seriously by any means. And I just decided to start doing it to just strengthen, you know, especially like my chest area and my arms. And I was just so weak and had so little muscle you know, by that time because of all the years on in bed. And I just really, really fell in love with weightlifting like pretty quickly. And now two years later, I am a bodybuilder. I'm have a have a bodybuilding competition in three weeks. I'm in school for exercise science. You know, I would love to pursue a degree regarding um, fitness and nutrition specifically for cardiovascular disease prevention, cardiovascular disease living. And, you know, I already am doing some advocacy work. And I hope that with with these degrees that I would like to get, as as well as all the knowledge I'm gaining just being a bodybuilder, I'm hoping to really help people with with heart disease. Wow, that that is quite the summary. (laughs) I have lots of questions. Yeah, I and I've just been furiously taking notes. So that's like the 50,000 foot view, right, of your life. And how, how old are you right now currently? I'm 32. 
32. I'm just thinking about all that you've been through. And 32 is not old. Like you have been through an, an amazing amount of medical trauma. And here you are thriving anyway. Like I'm assuming, I'm making the assumption based on the fact that you joined Women Heart and you have you're now in school. Like that is an incredible that's taking a step forward despite what you've been through. And I just have to applaud you for that because it could be so easy just to stay in this victim mindset and feel sorry for yourself and look at you. You're like ripped and you're doing a competition. <laughs> you're like, right? Like I just want listeners to hear that, that that you can go through like the hardest things in life and still thrive. So let's unpack that a little bit. As you are going through this, let's start with like the mental piece of it all. So with all that trauma, with all the setbacks, what did you find was helpful? You've mentioned community. What about your family? Like how how did you manage all that? Yeah, you were put into mental health therapy at 12 and it sounds like that was against your will, which usually it is at that in that age group. But then as you kept having these setbacks, like how did you mentally manage it all? So not well for a long time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> my teenage years, my early 20s were full of depression and bad decision making. So, yeah, really not well at first. But um, something something kind of happened when I went into heart failure. I had been on social media, you know, when it happened. And, and I was still staying as active as possible while I was on bed rest. I wasn't doing a ton, but I was, you know, maybe using little five pound weights and going on short walks. And I always just had a really positive attitude about it. So just by mistake, I kind of got a little bit of a following on social media and people were really captivated by the story. I had a lot of women you know, with heart conditions or maybe who were waiting on transplants, just messaging me, telling me how positive I was and how inspirational I was. And that was the first time that I really recall thinking, maybe this isn't so bad. Maybe once I get this heart, I can really use this to my advantage in life. And, you know, fast forward to now after the heart. So I went through a pretty intensive therapy of my own choosing after the transplant. It was like a 12 week, four days a week, three hours a day, um, like basically behavioral training uh, to deal with post-traumatic stress disorder, depression. It, it deals with a lot of a wide range of different, you know, cognitive differences. What is that called? DBT. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've done DBT. It's that amazing. I, mm -hmm. I loved it. So so things really changed for me after that. In fact, maybe a week after that, I went through my first sort of advocacy training with another organization. I got to go to Italy and uh, go through like a whole uh, three or four day in-person training for, for patient advocacy. That was really great. At this point, I had already been doing the bodybuilding for quite some time. I think it, maybe it was like a year after my transplant that I decided to go through through the therapy and then and then the advocacy training. So that was going on a year ago that I did that. So I had already been getting kind of a lot of great feedback from 
people in general, more so women with heart conditions, just about how great it was to see me being so physically fit and so health conscious. I would post, you know, healthy recipes. I'm really big into clean, clean, heart healthy eating. So when I when I did that mixed with the first training I did and now the training with Women Heart, I just started realizing more and more and more that this heart condition was really like a blessing, even though it was really challenging to go through and still is challenging some days. It really kind of gave me a super unique edge in the fitness and nutrition world. Um, And I think that I can have a really strong voice and I think it will be clear to people that I I know what I'm talking about and I have been through these challenges that I've had to, you know, really get through and figure out what works for maintaining health. Incredible. So basically you found purpose and meaning in your story and yep. your journey. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's what really changed things for me mentally. Really got me out of the victim mindset. Not, you know, healing is not linear. So not saying I don't still have those days where I don't actually, I don't victimize myself anymore based on my past but i i worry about future health concerns more so than i would like to worry about them and i don't think that's something that's ever necessarily going to change but again that dbt uh, really kind of teaches you tools to get those to go away (laughs) yes they do and for listeners who haven't heard about dialectic behavior therapy it, it it's an incredible way to reparent yourself and it teaches you something called distress tolerance. So basically, none of us are immune to challenges in life. If you're a human being and you're actively participating in the world and care about others and are putting yourself out there, you're likely going to have a challenge in your life. And DBT is an excellent curriculum to give you the skills and tools to handle tough days. And I know for me, I wasn't necessarily taught those skills as a, as a child. But, you know, in Mallory and I's defense, I don't know if like we're necessarily getting a curriculum in how to handle heart disease and congenital defects. <laughs> no, we are not. I'm not sure if you were in the breakout room with me when I actually suggested to one of the uh, one of the facilitators about maybe a DBT specifically for heart patients. I wasn't because I, I know I if I had been, I would have been all over that. Yeah, I, I mentioned that because I recall in my DBT group, it was it was virtual group therapy. I recall a lot of the times very much feeling like I was sort of taking over the group unintentionally because my issue was so complex compared to to some other issues. Not that those issues were not also equally as challenging. They were just very, very different from like typical life stressors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you obviously have so much to give, right? And so you were just ready to launch out the gate and be like, hey, I have this amazing tool. I mean, I personally think DBT is like the cure to like so much of society's ills. I really do. I've actually been very much considering pursuing sports psychology degree when I am done with this exercise science undergrad. Oh, I could see that for you very much in your future. So that's the mental overview. How about the physical? So I've had my scar cut three times and that's that's tough. And for you to have had six times 
and all that trauma, let's talk about the physical recovery and what you have done. Because what I'm really interested in is not only how do we heal from open heart surgery, but how do we heal well? So I have just done a lot of experimenting because there is not very much research and curriculum out there. Uh, maybe that will change when I, you know, when I have a PhD and I can write curriculum on it. Um, <laughs> so a big thing that I always started with after each open heart surgery was just kind of chest mobility, back mobility, stretching, simple yoga things. And then, you know, I added, I started adding the strength training this time around, which has made an incredible difference. I have never been more mobile. I have never felt better. A lot of that, of course, is due to now I actually have stamina so I can push myself further and my muscle endurance can improve and my cardiovascular endurance can improve. So I'm seeing those changes so much. I still do have quite a bit of post-surgical pain. A lot of it is in my back, which is pretty common from open heart surgery. I don't know if you experience that or not. A yes. lot of, lot of back pain. I also had a bad, so that's upper back. I also had a bad lower back just from all the time in bed. So right after my transplant, pretty much, I started going to physical therapy for my back and I was getting acupuncture. So between the back physical therapy, which by the way, I think physical therapy is the cure for a lot of things for pain management. So between that and the acupuncture and then just a lot of like core strength training, I can completely cured my lower back problems. I have no lower back problems anymore. I used to dread car rides, airplane, you know, all of those things. So my upper back is still an issue. A couple months ago, I started experiencing some left shoulder pain, which as a woman with a heart condition is very terrifying because you're mm -hmm. like, oh my gosh, I'm having a heart attack. I was pretty confident that it was not that. I obviously train very, very heavy and specifically for the category of bodybuilding I compete in, shoulders are very important. So I'm like, all right, they're overworked. I had a day where my arm went numb from it. So at that point, I decided to get it checked out. Come to find out, I have my left lower trap just does not activate. So anytime I've been doing back exercises, my shoulders have been taking over. So my left mm -hmm. shoulder is actually visibly bigger than my right shoulder because I'm oh, no. basically exercising it double what yeah. I mean to. So now I am in physical therapy for that, for that lower trap. It hurts. I'm hopeful that it is going to get better over time, just like my lower back did. And then, you know, when the trap is fixed and the shoulder isn't overworked, the shoulder will feel better. So it's, it's just a very kind of long cycle of listening to your body and getting it checked out and listening to the physical therapist and doing the things that you're told to do to make them feel better. So that's kind of more, you know, body mechanic, muscle type pain recovery. But then there's like a whole other side of, of a heart condition, which is just like, uh, you really feel like you have the flu a lot of the time. Much more worse when you're in heart failure, when something is going on with your heart. But even still after the transplant, you know, I do so much now and I demand so much of my body that when I wake up in the morning, a lot of the times I'm like, oh my gosh, I do not think I can get out of bed today. So I still require maybe more rest than another bodybuilder might. I like to schedule my life in a way that if I need to lay in bed until 10 in the morning, I can lay in bed until 10 in the morning. A lot of stretching, a lot of massage therapy. This summer, I'm getting my yoga teaching certification because I believe that if I am 
first like forced to do yoga every day for 30 days and then I can get paid for it. Maybe I'll actually do it more because I think that is really important. Flexibility and reason for your body feeling good. Weight training is great. The more muscle you build, the less flexible you become if you don't keep up on it, which will definitely cause some pain. Um, and then, you know, just getting outside and walking. I don't do any super intense cardio. I just mainly walk, hike. Sometimes I'll take some cycling classes because it's fun. I do a lot of pole dancing because that's also fun. But yeah, I mean, just a well, a well-rounded uh, fitness regimen with with strength training, flexibility, range of motion, and a little bit of of cardio in there. And then eating healthy. I mean, an anti-inflammatory diet is a real thing. Processed foods are not good for you. Olive oil, fish, you know, lean proteins, greens, that that there is so much truth and feeling good if you're eating that way. I am not one of those people who doesn't eat carbs. I love carbs. I love rice, bagels, oats, all of those things. But I keep them simple and clean for the most part. That does not mean I never have pizza and sushi and donuts and cake. I do, but very much in moderation. And I would say 90% of my diet is very heart healthy to the point that I actually have to add sodium to my diet, which you will never hear someone with a heart condition say. You know, most of the time, the typical American diet is so overprocessed and has so much sodium in it that it's really a death sentence for individuals who have cardiovascular disease and as and as a diagnosis for those that don't, eventually they will. So I'm hoping to shed more light on on that and how with diet and and uh, fitness, you can really make the risk of cardiovascular disease almost non-existent. Kapow, that was like an awesome like mini tutorial on thriving physically. Like, and I can't emphasize the anti-inflammatory diet enough with you. I I too follow everything you said minus the pole dancing i have not tried that however it's i rollerblade so <laughs> okay in addition to my activities here in the tetons but uh the anti-inflammatory diet i just got back on it because i've been having all kinds of cardiac issues again and did some blood work and found out my inflammation was sky high because i had covid in january uh. And the COVID basically set off this like downhill response or downstream response of all these inflammation markers to to just go crazy. So I'm following the Mediterranean paleo diet and it it yeah. is night and day. It is night and day for me. Yeah, I think Mediterranean paleo is a very good um, regimen to follow. I think what's missing when a lot of physicians talk uh, diet is is education on macronutrients, micronutrients, you know, calories to maintain, gain or lose weight. Just saying Mediterranean or paleo is, is just such a broad picture and it does not teach individuals how to really kind of zone in on their individual needs because keeping steady, steady macronutrients are so important for hormone balances, especially with women. Keeping steady micronutrients are so important for, you know, eye health, skin health, liver health, kidney health, all of those things. And I think that's really unfortunately overlooked when when we are taught about proper nutrition. Yeah, I, I my heart doctor, my surgeon and my cardiologist have not brought up nutrition once. 
Yeah, that is unfortunately very, very common. Mm -hmm. Um, You -hmm. almost have to look outside of, of, you know, the hospital setting for somebody who will teach you more about nutrition. I do recall meeting with a nutritionist in the hospital before my transplant, but I wasn't given anything I didn't already know. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And unfortunately, the, the problem is, especially when you have a heart condition, Affording a nutritionist outside of what your insurance will cover is very, very expensive. And I do think it is something that more insurance needs to look into covering as well as, you know, personal training or some sort of fitness education. The training that I did in Italy last December, we talked a lot about policymaking and different things that go into presenting you know, new healthcare technology, whether it would be a device or something like having nutrition education covered by insurance. And it's very complex. There's so much that goes into it. It's different in every country. But I really, I really hope to make some waves in that in my future with getting more of these policies integrated into into cardiovascular health within the hospital setting. Preach it, sister. Yeah. And (laughs) in episode three, in season one of this podcast, episode three, I interviewed my nutritionist, Georgie McNiff, and she really helped me kind of come around the bend of healing with the nutritional piece. And it's such a good episode. So listeners go back and listen to that because it it basically brings home a lot of what Mallory and I are, are talking about. Okay, so we've talked about the mental, we've talked about the physical. What about the spiritual for you? Oh my, that has been, I would say, my biggest challenge in all of this. It's kind of the the third and final piece that I need to figure out. Right now, I'm absolutely nowhere with that. I am hopeful that this yoga teacher training I'm going through this summer, it's in the middle of nowhere in Portugal, might ignite something. Mm -hmm. Um, I want there to be a spiritual aspect. There just is not. And there hasn't been for a long time for me. And I think that's largely due to the fact that I have just taken care of myself for a very long time. And I have just been resilient and made it work for me. And I felt like I'm the only person that I can really count on. Which is not true. I do have a great family. I have great friends. But I think it's common with, you know, people who have such insane health issues, especially at a young age, to just kind of feel really alone. So, yeah, the spiritual aspect is a work in progress. (laughs) I appreciate that honesty. And I am willing to bet there's a lot of listeners right now who are going, yeah, I'm with you. It just has a way of rocking you, your world, your soul in a in a way I don't think any any other event can in life. And what I'm what I'm making up about your situation is your timeline kept getting shifted over and over again. Like these weren't just minor splinters, bumps in the road, right? These were like major timeline shifts over and over again. And that mm-hmm. can be so disorienting for the soul. Yes, absolutely. I, you know, and now I'm in this place where I almost feel like I'm reliving my 20s because I spent my 20s sick. Um, mm-hmm. And here I am with all this energy. And I, you know, I didn't really get the chance to do much exploring in my 20s. And, you know, I, I dropped out of college when I was young. 
So now I'm 32 in college. I travel all the time, see the world, and I just like want to live and be free. But it's almost kind of a weird thing to be doing in your mid-30s. I say you're right on time. You know, like this is your time. I mean, it's I don't want to tell you how to think and feel, but it you are maximizing your life like you're one of the lucky ones. I know I do not feel guilty about it. It's definitely different. And I think it's I think the things I do with my life are quite shocking to a lot of people. But I think that I have a really exciting, fabulous life. And I think I'm very lucky. I think I'm lucky to have went into heart. You know, the heart failure was inevitable for me eventually. I think I'm very lucky that it happened when I was so young so I could enjoy this heart in my 30s and in my 40s rather than having it happen when I was in my 50s and then, you know, enjoying the heart at that time in my life. Um, This time I have, you know, youth on my side and a lot of, lot of years ahead. And I feel like it's not too late to pursue these degrees. Not that it would have been too late if I would have been 50 or so when I got the transplant, but it, it definitely feels like I have more time at my age. Wow. Yeah. And youth on your side for healing, because I've talked to I have two other heart transplant stories in this season and they were significantly older than you and they both are thriving as well. But it was harder for them. Yeah. Yeah. I say good on you. And again, it's just testament that we as humans can go through really hard things and thrive anyway. And we can heal not only just heal, but heal well. Right. And that that's everything let's talk about your heart so do you know who it came from like tell me about that part of the story so i do not know in order for that to happen the donor family would have to write a letter to life bank who would then contact me and then i would have the choice as to whether or not i wanted the letter or not i could do the same thing i could write a letter to them give it to life bank life bank would contact them and you know that then they would have the choice whether or not to receive the letter so far, that has not happened on either side. So, yeah, I, I don't know where it came from, but I'm thankful for whoever that person was. Mm-hmm. The other two people I interviewed for this, for the Heart Chamber podcast, one of the guys, he was able to find out about the guy and, you know, where his heart came from and had been making a little bit of contact with the family. But then, unfortunately, like the the parents died and he he never got to meet the family but he's he he really described it as like a very emotional experience and that he wasn't even sure if he wanted to engage and it it does sound like that that is a major extra piece of the healing that you choose to take on cuz you're you're taking on the grief of another family or you can just stay in your lane and focus on your healing yes that my plan is to just sort of stay in my lane mm-hmm. If they were to reach out, I would probably read the letter. I just have never felt like that's really my place because I'm the one who who got to live. Um, So I don't want to bring up old traumas if they're if the family is not ready for it. Right. That's super respectful. And that's a good viewpoint for the listeners who are facing heart transplant. Do you have any parting advice for people who are walking the same road that you have walked? Stay as strong as you can, even in heart failure, exercise to the best of your ability, listen to your body. You know, a lifetime with a heart condition, I never once passed out. I never once 
had to like be taken to the hospital due to, you know, overworking myself physically. I've just always known, okay, this is when I need to stop and I've stopped. I think staying as strong and as active as possible leading up to different surgeries really helped aid quick recovery. I think that being physically strong is a direct reflection of being mentally strong. And a lot of times I think it's the first step. It really wasn't until I started getting very in, into weightlifting that I decided I wanted to tackle my mental health. And then the mental clarity that I got just from exercising was so significant that it made getting back into school, taking charge of my mental health, you know, volunteering with these different advocacy organizations, traveling, pursuing, you know, pretty extensive degrees and certifications. All of that has been made possible by having a serious fitness regimen. That is what really kind of set it off for me. You know, more and more evidence every day showing the link between being physically fit and being mentally fit. Yeah. You've heard it from Mallory, folks. You don't have to go be a bodybuilder. You know, any sort of physical activity that that sets your heart on fire, no pun intended, <laughs> is, is the way to go. I personally love the bodybuilding aspect because it, it really dives deep into nutrition. You learn so much about nutrition and bodybuilding down to the gram of food. Wow. Didn't know that. Just sounds like a really great way to just improve your overall life. I, I weigh everything I eat. I know exactly what I'm taking into my body. I mostly eat single ingredient foods. Yeah, it really, it really, really forces you to learn a lot about what you're eating. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Mallory, for your time and your courage and your dedication to improving patients that will come after you. Well, thank you. I think there's a bright future in that for, for both of us. That's the goal. That's the goal. And that's our episode for today. Thank you so much for spending a little bit of your day with me. If you enjoyed this podcast, I sure would appreciate if you would go to my website, theheartchamberpodcast.com and make a donation. Also, if you are a fellow heart warrior, I'd love to hear from you. Would you like to share your story on this podcast? You can either send me an email at boots at theheartchamberpodcast.com or you can go to my website and go to the contact link and leave me a message there. There's also a way to leave me a voicemail on my website. I'm so glad you joined me for today. Please be sure to come back next Tuesday to the Heart Chamber Podcast for another inspiring episode.